This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Anyway, in our series, we've talked about the beginnings of things. And, and, and what's absolutely remarkable to me, and what, in, in my view, nobody should, should leave Villanova without being able to write a well-substantiated essay on the types of things that our presenters have talked about. The, it, it, it does blow my mind that the physicists and the astronomers and the geologists and the biologists have come up with evidence uh, for when we can talk about the beginnings of the universe, uh, of, of, of virtually everything, that there's a date that they can attach to that. The Planck Institute puts 13.82 billion years uh, as the date for that. And, uh, and then the geologists and the earth scientists put a date uh, for the accretion and the formation of the earth at 4.5672 billion years. 4.5672, they claim that they can be that precise about the, for, the, the beginnings uh, of the earth. But in any case, we had Phil Maroney start us off. With the, with the beginnings after the so-called Big Bang. And, and he, he, he qualified that. In, in fact, the physics department had uh, Paul Steinhardt, who's the, got the Einstein chair up at Princeton, so he knows something. Uh, and, uh, and he's talking about a big bounce, that there are trillion year cycles uh, of Big Bang, expansion, contraction, and another bounce, and we're just in the most recent big bounce. Maybe so. But even if we are, uh, he doesn't, uh, Steinhardt doesn't dispute that approximate date of a little under 14 billion years. Uh, I'm sure it'll come at some point, but not yet. <laughs> um, so whether it's a big bounce or whether it's a big bang uh, for the first time, it's about that, that date. And if it is a big bang, well, what? there's actually no theory of the big bang. It doesn't seem as though everybody, anybody can really get to the point of, of, of saying exactly why we had a big bang. What was there before that? A singularity. What's a singularity? A point without space of infinite heat and density. I have no idea what that means. Uh, <laughs> but it, 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 or, or if there was anything uh, there. The, the physicists, even the theoretical physicists, only get back to 10, point, uh, 10 to the minus 43rd second. Now, that's getting pretty close. Uh, that's getting pretty far back to the beginning, but not all the way uh, to the beginning. So our, 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 our series on beginnings doesn't really start at the beginning. It starts immediately after the Big uh, Bang, immediately after uh, the beginning. And, and that's what Phil Maroney was giving his presentation on. And he talked about how in that very early period, and the physicists are funny how they talk about periods. I mean, the, uh, one epoch of time goes from 10 to the minus 43rd second to 10 to the minus 35th second. That's a whole era. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, I thought, you know, you think the historians cover short periods of time when they do decades or centuries. You know, the physicists do parts of seconds. But a lot happened in that second. And relative to there was no time before that, I guess a second is, 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 is a long time. But in any case, very soon, almost immediately after the Big Bang, we have the formation, the appearance of what they refer to as the particle zoo all kinds of particles, all kinds of crazy uh, particles, among which are two of six quarks, the up and the down quark. And these things, as soon as they're formed, seem to form little threesomes, uh, uh, mediated by the strong force. 
So their relationship among these three is structured very precisely by the strong force. And if you have two of one and one of the other, you, you get a proton, a positively charged subatomic sub particle. Or if you get two of the other and one of the first, then you get a neutron, a, a neutrally charged particle. But you get these subatomic particles. These things are unbelievably long-lasting. Uh, there's been a hope ever since Democritus in, in ancient Greece that there, we could find an atom. He, he, he called it the atom. And, and atom, I guess, in, in Greek meant uncuttable. What is the smallest possible thing that everything else is made out of? I mean, Democritus said there's incredible diversity here that we can see around us. There's, there's you, and there's me, and there's chairs, and there's mountains, and there's rocks. But amongst all of this incredible diversity, there's got to be something at, at the origin which everything is made out of. And he, and he said there's got to be atoms. Uh, and he says those are the uncuttable things. And we came up with some idea of the atoms, but then we started cutting that up into smaller pieces. The protons and, and the neutrons and the quarks uh, are among those sub. Uh, at atomic particles, out of which then the story is everything else is made. You are quarks, I'm quarks, Mount Kilimanjaro is all quarks. Uh, now, is there something even prior to quarks? Because the physicists haven't been real happy with all of this, these particles. There's a gazillion of them. Uh, and they've become really unhappy with that. Maybe there's something even more fundamental than, than quarks. And so the, 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 the theoretical physicists talk about strings and loops, which aren't strings and loops, but they're vibrations. Things that vibrate in, in different types of loops or strings. There's no evidence for this. You can't do an experiment to try to see a string or a loop vibrating around. But mathematically, there they are. And they're vibrating in more than four dimensions. In fact, there's a couple of, di a couple of dozen dimensions that they're vibrating in. What that means is, I have no idea. Uh, but uh, but it, maybe there is, maybe there's not. Leon Lederman, who's, a, who's got a Nobel Prize and he's done all kinds of experiments on this, he dismisses that. He says, unless we can even imagine some way to come up with some evidence, you know, we're, we're not going to go down that path. So even they disagree on, on this. But there, it's that hope to try to get to something out of which everything like us uh, is, is made. But we'll start with the quarks, and they form relationships mediated by the strong force into these subatomic particles, protons and neutrons. There's no atoms yet. They don't exist. It takes 300,000 years as the universe is expanding, and it's expanding a lot, which means that instead of being infinitely hot uh, and dense, it becomes less hot and dense. And so after 300,000 years, and when it's too hot and dense, everything's jumping around and moving around so fast that the electrons and the other types of uh, things which are there just can't connect with, uh, with the protons. It's not unlike the center of our sun right now, where the, where the atoms have been ionized, the, the electrons have been stripped away, uh, and that's what you had at this point. By 300,000 years, it's cool enough and less dense enough so that finally the electromagnetic force can structure a relationship now between those protons and neutrons and an electron, either with one uh, proton in a hydrogen atom or helium with two uh, protons, and then with various numbers of neutrons. This is going to be a theme that we, that, uh, that's sort of a takeaway theme here. We have increasing complexity in the nature of relationships, if sustained relationships that get more and more complicated and in, are incorporated by subsequent relationships. And that just kind of keeps on uh, going, it, 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 it seems to me. Uh, and these things are really sustained. As I mentioned, these quarks and these protons, these protons that are, make you up, 
come from that period. You're made out of 14 billion old stuff. Uh, you're, you're just the most recently recycled uh, effort uh, in, in the universe. A little more complex than what we had at, at the beginning. But okay, so, so now we've got atoms. Only hydrogen and helium. That doesn't lead us very much. I mean, 65% of the atoms in your body by number are hydrogen. So, and they all come from this period of time. So you're, it's pretty old. But you're made out of a lot of other stuff. Carbon and nitrogen and oxygen and all this other neat stuff. That didn't exist. So it, it, we couldn't have been there to watch this because no, none of those things exist. Where do they come from? Well, that's where Ed Guinan came in. He came from the, uh, the astronomy department. And he said, well, we need to add gravity to this mix. Gravity doesn't have any effect when it's at the extraordinarily small distances between quarks and between protons. And by the way, as we know, pos positively charged things don't like to get together with each other. They sort of avoid uh, each other. Uh, and so they sort of go swerving off if they get too close uh, to, uh, to, to each other. Uh, 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 but, but it, gravity has no relationship between uh, them when they're that close. Gravity can't hold protons together. Uh, they, they just want to stay away from each other. Um, so, so there we are. So, but what he says is that there are enormous clouds of this hydrogen and helium, with a little deuterium and lithium in there for the mix, but not, nothing to speak of. But none of the other atoms that we're familiar with. Clouds that are millions of light years across of, of these things. But just irregularly formed enough, with enough asymmetry, if there's a, they are organized a little more densely here, a little less densely there. And when these clumps of atoms are far enough apart from each other, gravity can start to have an influence uh, on them. And as we all know, gravity tends to draw things together, tries to draw them close to each other. We're very lucky that it wasn't an absolute equilibrium so that one clump would pull ac 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 completely equally on other clumps because then they would never have developed any more sophisticated relationship and you and I wouldn't be here. So be very happy that there was imperfection uh, at this point. But with the asymmetries or the imperfections or the irregularities, which astoundingly we can now see, uh, the pictures of the sky will show us what that was like uh, 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 now with the WMAP project, which uh, that blows my mind too. Uh, but the gravity starts pulling huge clumps of, of, of these things together, drawing them in, and then they start to spin. Uh, just like a speeder in, that one, in those wonderful figure skating uh, ex exhibi exhibitions we've seen in the Olympics. Uh, this, the skaters draw themselves in and they go faster and faster around and around. It, these enormous clouds will form disks and they start swirling around and they become somewhat more dense and more dense. And as they become more dense, the heat goes up and, they, and the particles start moving around more quickly. Until until the gravity is able to create enough pressure and enough density and enough heat so that the protons will actually stick together and it can overcome their natural resistance. When they, when they do that, they release energy. And the equilibrium between gravity pulling stuff in and fusion blowing things apart is what we call stars. And so when you add the strong force, and then you have atoms with uh, the electromagnetic force, and then you add gravity, you get a more complex thing called stars. And the stars are related to each other through gravity, forming galaxies, whole groups of, uh, of, of these stars. 
for a long time, this whole presentation that we've been given over the last few uh, uh, months is not a presentation that could have been given, say, when Villanova was founded, because nobody knew it. It couldn't have been given a century ago when Woodrow Wilson was president. Nobody could have given these talks because nobody knew it. In that sense, it's a relatively new story. Some of this really only some years old, some decades and some uh, back to the 20s and so on with Edward Hubble. But it's still a relatively new story, an evidence-based account of where we come from and how we got here uh, and, and what makes us uh, up. But you add now these three big forces uh, and you formed suns and galaxies. And a century ago we wondered, maybe the Milky Way is the only galaxy. Maybe there are other clouds sort of floating around the Milky Way, but we sort of were pretty sure the universe and the Milky Way galaxy were the same thing. One of the great accomplishments of Henriette Lovett and Edwin Hubble was to determine that, in fact, we're not alone in the universe, or at least our galaxy isn't alone. And now we're up to over 100 billion galaxies, each with an average of 100 billion stars. There's more stars in our universe than there are grains of sand in, 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 on the Earth. It's unbelievable how big this is. And that is a, a, a brand new uh, observation, an observation which, which many of the established astronomers at the time resisted and rejected for, for, for quite a while. Einstein was among them, for example. He didn't like a lot of this uh, uh, stuff. But, but we, what we've, now we have stars and galaxies, and that's what Ed Guinan for. This was about a half a billion years or so after uh, the Big Bang that we start forming uh, these types of things. So there's a progression over time. There's the arrow of time, uh, in, in, at least at this level. Uh, maybe not at, at subatomic levels, but at this level there's this progression uh, in time. And, and so Ed Guinan walked us through that. Now what's interesting about fusing these protons is that you started having larger and larger nuclei that can form more complex and heavier atoms so that you can, f you can fuse this hydrogen and helium together to form uh, silicon and oxygen and nitrogen and, uh, and carbon, which is a good thing because you and me and everything that's alive on Earth that we know of is made out of carbon because carbon's really neat in its structure how it can combine with so many other atoms. And so you've got the basis now for lots of these uh, heavier atoms up until the point where it starts forming iron, which has 26 protons. Because when it starts forming iron, instead of releasing energy, it seems to not release energy, and that means the equilibrium is broken. If the star is big enough, it blows up at that point because the equilibrium doesn't work, and we have a supernova. This in incredible explosion which creates incredible uh, heats uh, and in that very short period, these seconds of the explosion of the supernova, you have the formation of all of the other elements in the periodic table. If you have a gold ring on your finger, uh, it was made in a supernova. We, we can't make gold, we can't make carbon, we can't make atoms here. They can only be made in this sort of cauldron that the stars and the supernova uh, are, are able to produce. And this thing blows up and blasts all of these heavier elements out into uh, the, the universe at incredible speeds. And they get all mixed up with pre-existing clouds of hydrogen and, and helium. We obviously had something like this happen. Some supernova, or more than that, blew up in, 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 in our region of the neighborhood. 
uh, about five billion or a little bit years uh, ago. And all of this got mixed up into the pre-existing clouds. Now, why do we, why do we know that uh, this had to be the case? Because Earth has all kinds of these heavier elements uh, in that. And they couldn't have come from anywhere else except from this sort of uh, event. That's, uh, that's where they originate from. So we have a supernova exploding. Right? What is it? Uh, Go, uh, ignite change, go nova, right? Uh, well, it's very literal. Uh, it, the supernova blows up, it ignites, and it, it, it sets off uh, a, a chain of events uh, then where gravity can again start collecting all of this swirling cloud of hydrogen and helium and now lots of other elements which are starting to bump into each other and between covalent bonds and other types of bonding, you start to have the formation of more complex combinations of atoms out there in space. Lots of different molecules. Water is among them. Uh, the, the way that oxygen and hydrogen are structured, they really like to combine. And they look like Mickey Mouse. You've got a big, uh, a big oxygen and two uh, little hydrogen sitting there on, on top. Uh, and uh, and, and that, there's lots of water in space. There's lots of other chemicals in space. There's lots of minerals. Uh, we, we had um, uh, Robert Hazen here, uh, who's a mineralogist. He talks about ur minerals forming in space, how carbon, for example, can form uh, one structure, which is graphite, like in your lead pencil, or it can form another structure, which are diamonds. Uh, and, there's, and diamonds seem to be one of the, he calls them ur minerals, uh, floating around in space. So you have, in that sense, we've, we're moving from cosmic evolution to chemical evolution, or the increasing sets of relationships among quarks, among subatomic particles within atoms, between atoms within molecules, among similar uh, atoms within uh, minerals, and gravity still is drawing all of these things uh, together. <coughs> and, and over 99% of all of that stuff which was in our local cloud gets locked up into what becomes our sun. And again, it, uh, it, it's, it's that equilibrium between uh, gravity and fusion, which started a little under five billion uh, years ago. And our life is at mid-age mid right now. We're hoping it doesn't have a midlife crisis, but it's expected to go for another five billion years or so. So you've got time. There's nothing to worry about. Uh, but we, we have the sun less than a percent. And we know the sun is a second generation star. It's not a first generation star because it doesn't have only hydrogen and helium in it. There are traces of other elements in there. And amazingly, uh, the astronomers can tell us what it's made out of from the light that comes in ways that I'm not going to take the time to do that. But they can read the light and tell us what the sun is made out of, what atoms are, are in there, and what percentage uh, of, of the sun is made up by different types of atoms. In any case, we have our sun. <coughs> and the leftovers go bumping into each other, and they start accreting. They st the, the chunks of this, uh, of, of the, of this uh, supernova start bumping into each other, and they stick together. And gravity forms the accretion, which over maybe just a some millions of years, forms the different tertiary planets, the, 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 the rocky planets, the four interior rocky planets, the gaseous planets, uh, Saturn and Jupiter and so on, all of that uh, gets blown away by solar winds and, and, and the gassy planets are out there. On, on the, but, uh, and we could not have formed until 
there had been that supernova to produce the hard stuff that we know of. All of that iron and nickel, which is at our center, uh, needed a first generation star to produce. All right, so Ed Guinan walked us through uh, all of that. And, and we then we have the differentiation of Earth with the, with, the, with the metals going to the interior, and the interior of our Earth is now as hot as the surface of our sun, and that heat provides a lot of mechanisms that drives a lot of movements of the tectonic plates and so on. All right, so we have the formation and the differentiation of Earth, which is a more complex body than even the sun is, although it's got its onion structure too, uh, where we have 4,700 types of minerals now on Earth. The numbers of, uh, and complexity of, uh, of uh, you come on and do whatever you want to do. <laughs> you, keep, you keep going. Yeah, um, so we have, we have the, the, the formation of Earth about 4.5672 billion years ago. Robert Hazen came along and he talked about biochemical evolution, the increasing complexity in relationships among uh, these, these chemicals, amongst lipids and amino acids and, and, and proteins and so on, until and they, they form things like membranes, uh, little skins, uh, and uh, hey, that looks promising. Uh, and uh, you're a magician. Uh, you're, oh, how nice. Um, let's see. Okay, let's give you sound also. How about that? Thank you so much. <laughs> Never in doubt. <laughs> Okay, so we, so, so we have the formation of the Earth, and we've got increased complexity, increased numbers of relationships of things which last for a long time. But in that sense, what we've got is ongoing beginnings. What do you want to call it? Creativity? There, there weren't stars, there, there wasn't anything, and then there was. There weren't atoms, and then there were. There weren't molecules, and then there were. There, there, there wasn't suns and galaxies, and then there were. There weren't uh, 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 rocky planets, and then there were. Well, those are, those are a series of beginnings. Uh, so they're sustained, this stuff lasts for a long time, uh, and there's, uh, there's change, uh, and there's development that, that, that goes on. Uh, and, uh, and, and Robert Hazen got us to the point where these different uh, chemicals and parts got together so we could have membranes and metabolism, we could have access to energy, and there's lots of radiation all around, but it has to be usable. Uh, and and it's, it has to be able to reproduce in response to environmental changes, uh, which is how you develop RNA and later uh, DNA, and un you get this unbelievable set of complex relationships in a prokaryote cell. We're not too impressed with bacteria now, although you should be. I mean, Mike, Zim Mike Zimmerman always likes to remind me uh, uh, the story about what's at the top of the food chain, and of course, we like to imagine that we're at the top of the food chain. Uh, but remember that there's more bacteria cells in and on you than there are cells that make you up. Uh, there's an awful lot of these critters around. And then when you die, who gets to eat you? Uh, who's at the top of the food chain, right? So these little critters have been around for about 3.8 billion or so years. The complexity here is astounding, although from our point of view, this is the most simplest form of life that we can imagine. 
But when you compare it to what existed before, it's astounding uh, what, what bacteria and other types of prokaryote cells are. Uh, and, and, and they go happily run, uh, going along, and they love to reproduce. Uh, you know, reproduction is, is, is great fun, and, and, and they like to mix genes. Uh, and, and they don't restrict themselves to just two in, in the party. That's a whole bunch in the party here exchanging genes. Uh, and, and they're very generous with, with that. And, and what's nice if you're a bacteria is your dream of reproduction can come true about every 20 minutes. Uh, and so, you know, life is good. And so why change a good thing? And it stays that way for like two billion years. But why would you change? You know, I mean, they, can, they might change at the, at, at, at the outset. But the basic plan, uh, it, it lasts for a long time until for some reason they decide to become eukaryote cells. They want to have a more complex DNA, they want to have a nuclei in the middle, they want to have some more organelles and so on. They want to have a relationship with a mitochondrial cell, which is a pretty neat relationship ha to have because it allows them to move from photosynthesis to, uh, to uh, basically burning carbohydrates, which is why I like to eat donuts, uh, because these things like uh, got to, uh, figured out how to, how to do that. And and so we start to have more complex relationships within a single cell. Uh, and, and then after that, we had Dennis Wyckoff come. And he talked about this long development in which cells started to learn how to cooperate and work together. Quite amazing. Why should they? Uh, and, and, and he developed, I'm not going to spend the time because he was here, but, but you have multicellular animals. You have animals with greater numbers of parts and greater complexity among them. Uh, and, and, the, and then you have, of course, the, the, the development of, 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 of land animals after the, the ocean-based animals. But it, we, we're having great complexity here. Then with Tom Jackman talked about mammals. Uh, the, the, the Cambrian explosion starting around 500 million years ago. Uh, we move through this greater complexity of life forms, uh, and then mammals starting a few hundred million years ago, but they really take off after 65 million years ago after the asteroid hits and kills off the dinosaurs, and then they can really go. And then last time, uh, Dr. Zimmerman talked to us about this story of the emergence out of uh, one types of mammals into hominins, uh, and then us. Uh, we are really Johnny-come-latelys. We've been here a really short period of, of, of time. Uh, 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 but uh, we arrived around 200,000 years ago after lots of other types of hominins who are all extinct uh, at this point. We're the last ones standing in, in, in this group. So here we are at this point. Uh, so it's taken us six presentations just to get to this point, and there's, uh, and there's an awful lot more to say about it than that. And it's important to remember not all of this is just leading to us. Uh, I mean, it, we're here on the, uh, on the edges, but it's leading to an awful lot of other things too, and they have a lot of neat uh, uh, properties uh, among them as well. So, I mean, we're, we're pretty interesting, but there's a lot of other interesting uh, things too. But we are interesting because of our brains. Uh, and, and we're interesting in that if, uh, regard because that might be the three pounds of stuff sitting here between your ears is probably the most complex matter we know of in the universe. You've got 100 billion cells sitting there with up to a trillion synapses or connections between them. It's an unbelievably complex uh, set of, of matter or whatever it is. 
all of it in, in sustained communication with each other, the neurons communicating with each other through these electrical chemical uh, exchanges. Uh, and a phenomenal, we may not be the center of the universe anymore, but we may be the most complex stuff in, in, in the universe with all of these relationships now between cells in our brain and the rest of, uh, of, of, of our body. Well, you put all of this together. You put together what the physicists and the astronomers and the geologists and the mineralogists and the biologists and the others have been telling us. <clears throat> and you start to come up with a story, an, a story which is actually coherent. A story which starts almost 14 billion years ago and develops in comprehensible stages. Uh, one requiring the previous stage uh, and one not necessarily only leading to the next stage but which is incorporated in the subsequent stage until we get to us. Now that's, that's really a, a remarkable thing uh, and, and, and that's what we're, uh, and we need to see it, these, this much longer progression of time than what we've very often, at least in the liberal arts, uh, thought about. So we need to be familiar with some of these names, the Precambrian era, what came before life, uh, the, the, the Cambrian period, when, when multicellular life really takes off. There's a few of these names which are uh, familiar to us. Jurassic, we all know Jurassic. Uh, so, so some of these names are familiar, but the rest of these names, interestingly, are names of geological periods usually by biological properties. In other words, the, that we, we give the names to this according to the types of animals that we have found uh, or plants, uh, uh, different living organisms in these plants. Robert Hazen likes to talk about how there's a relationship between life and, and minerals, that two-thirds of those 4,700 minerals would not exist had there not been life, uh, that, uh, that, that living things have all kinds of influences uh, on, uh, on, on the earth, and it's not just a one way uh, set of relationship. And that we're sitting on top of all of these changes which have taken place over the time. I mean, do you like having, what is it, uh, uh, you know, I don't know how many billions of cells in, in, in your body working together? Well, we didn't come up with that plan. You know, that's, uh, that's hundreds of millions of years, years old. Do you like having a left and right side? Uh, well, you know, some of the flatworms discovered that uh, body plan a long time back. I mean, there are, there are other things. There's starfish, for example, but we, we're tetrapods. We have four things sticking out from a trunk and our head sticks up here. That's an interesting body plan, but it's not the only one. Uh, but is, do you like having four uh, arms and, and, and a head? Well, that's, that comes out of a very long series. And there's a million other characteristics that we have, which we see are, are, are the heritage uh, of, of what we've uh, inherited uh, fr from, fr from the past and during all of these different uh, periods. Okay, so. What we've talked about is an incredible amount of time, which seems to have become commonplace to discuss in the natural sciences. They're sort of used to this. Uh, in, in, in the liberal arts, we tend to uh, leave our attention to the cultural periods of the last few thousand years. That would be right there. So what we've talked about in our topic so far is like this big, and what the liberal arts tends to look at is about this big. Uh, in terms of the amount of time. Now, okay, the physicists talk about a second, so they talk about even less than, uh, than that. But, but by and large, uh, this seems to be, uh, although a lot's happened in, in, in the ancient, medieval, modern, and contemporary period. So, uh, but, uh, but that tends to be what the liberal arts have, have, have looked at. <clears throat> I think the founders of our university were brilliant because what they saw was that they said, you know what? 
Those two things aren't separate, the natural sciences and the liberal arts. In fact, they are in conversation with each other, or they should be in conversation with each other. That the relationship is dense and thick and really uh, uh, marvelous, uh, and that we're going to have a college of liberal arts and sciences. We're going to put them in the same institutional framework so that we can foster conversation between them, because in fact, they need each other uh, it, 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 to, to really explain these, uh, how we should best respond to the questions about where did we come from and how did we get to be this way and what are we made of and you know who are we and this sort of thing and that we see that even in our logo our logo the various symbols symbolize a lot of important ideas but maybe at a more prosaic level they also symbolize some natural elements I mean look the heart might uh, it might symbolize a passion for example a passionate love but maybe it also symbolizes blood uh, or uh, which is important or this air you know, going through the art, the penetration of the word into the heart. Maybe it, uh, it, it talks about stones, the feathers coming from birds, uh, the, the leaves coming from plants, the radiation around the cross. You, in other words, and then the text uh, right here, which is what the liberal arts tends to emphasize is we go to libraries and read texts. Well, we used to go to libraries, and now we just sit in front of computer screens or try to get computer screens to work. But we read text, and, 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 and texts are really important. Uh, Texts are also things which have existed for a total of about three or four thousand years, which is a fraction of the time uh, of, 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 of our own experience as humans and of, uh, uh, and of the universe. But texts are incredibly important. They're magical. Uh, the fact that somebody can squiggle some black lines on a white piece of paper and the thoughts of a person who died thousands of years ago can penetrate my mind. If you're not impressed by that, you must be dead, I think. So I love texts. I mean, that's what I've done with my life is read texts. But what our logo says is the texts have to be integrated with the study not only of the text, but of radiation and plants and animals and blood and, 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 and rocks and so on. And if you study all of those things, you start to understand them better than if you understood them separately. Um, and, and we have all of these departments. Uh, and uh, we can ask the beginnings about the beginnings of stars and the universe and earth and life and complex life and humanity and so on. We also need to think a little bit about the origins of the things which we study in our various disciplines. Uh, art and culture and economics and ethics and politics and, uh, and all of this stuff. Where did those, not only those fields come from, but where did the things that they study come from? How do we understand the beginnings of the liberal arts, in addition to the things that the natural scientists uh, study. <clears throat> For example, history. History in our world is a humanity. Uh, we have, in the liberal arts, we have social sciences and we have humanities. History is one of the humanities, just about as far away from the natural sciences uh, as, as you can possibly get. Uh, but but, but what, what is history? Well, what is, traditionally, look at the topics of the courses that our history department offers, and I love them all. Uh, I was a history undergrad major, so I think history is incredibly important, but it tends to be the written record of the human past. There's nothing wrong with the written record of the human past. I love it. But how can we see that as being part of the natural record of the entire past? And so if history is the study of the written record of the human past, it studies one thing. If it's the study of the past, 
it has to study a lot more now that the past is 14 billion years old. And this field of, of big history which is developed is, is, has been developed by historians who said we need to start our courses at the beginning. Uh, and the, uh, but the, the people who have revolutionized our idea of the past are not the historians. The historians just kept going to archives where they studied written texts, and they never changed what the notion of the past was. Who changed our notion of what the past was? The physicists and the astronomers and the geologists and the biologists. Who has transformed the study of the past? Who's transformed history? One of the classic liberal arts. The scientists have. And frankly, we haven't caught up with them. There's virtually no courses in our history department beyond a few thousand years ago. Not, not that we shouldn't study what's happened in the last few thousand years. I think it's really important. But it's not the only thing. In fact, it's not the majority of time. So, uh, and, and we have other courses uh, on this. Uh, on, on ethics, how should we develop our discussion of ethics? Um, and when does our concern with ethics begin? Let me just show you one little thing, if I can, if, if, if the thing works here. Um, th uh, this is my favorite uh, little thing. So a final experiment that I want to mention to you is our fairness study. Uh, and so this, this became a very famous study, and there's now many more, because after we did this about 10 years ago, uh, it became uh, very well known. And we did that originally with capuchin monkeys, and I'm going to show you the first experiment that we did. It has now been done with dogs, and with birds, and with chimpanzees, uh, with, but with Sarah Blossom, we started out with capuchin monkeys. So what we did is we put two capuchin monkeys side by side. Again, these animals, they live in a group. They know each other. We take them out of the group, put them in a test chamber. And there's a very simple task that they need to do. And if you give both of them cucumber for the task, the two monkeys side by side, they're perfectly willing to do this 25 times in a row. So cucumber, even though it's really only water in my opinion, but cucumber is perfectly fine for them. Now, if you give the partner grapes, the food preferences of my capuchin monkeys correspond exactly with the prices in the supermarket. And so if you give them grapes as a far better food, uh, then you create inequity between them. So that's the experiment we did. Recently, we videotaped it with new monkeys who had never done the task, thinking that maybe they would have a stronger reaction, and that turned out to be right. The one on the left is the monkey who gets cucumber. The one on the right is the one who gets grapes. The one who gets cucumber, note that the first piece of cucumber is perfectly fine. The first piece she eats. Uh, then she sees the other one getting grape, and you will see what happens. So she gives a rock to us. That's the task. And we give her a piece of cucumber, and she eats it. The other one needs to give a rock to us. And that's what she does. And she gets a grape. And she eats it. The other one sees that. She gives a rock to us now, gets again cucumber. <laughs> she tests her rock now against the wall. She needs to give it to her. And she gets to her again. This is basically the Wall Street protest that you see here. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I, so, I, I, final experiment.
Oh, what, what, how do I start this? Oops. Oh, no, gosh. Gotcha. Okay. I, I, ju I just show that because if, if it's accurate, if that tells us something that's real, a, a, a concern with fairness, of being treated equally, which we often associate with ethical thinking. I mean, there's a lot more to ethics than that. Uh, but the Capuchins seem to have that. Now, one of the classic comparisons which are made is comparing us with other species. And then, you know, then there's a, a potential that maybe our common ancestor had something along those lines. Our common ancestor with the Capuchins is about 42 million years ago. So does that mean that the origin of ethics reaches back tens of millions of years? I, I, I think Franz Duval is absolutely wonderful. He's, uh, if you haven't read these books, I encourage you to read them because he talks about how apes have a theory of mind, how they understand how another ape is thinking and, and feeling even, that they have empathy, uh, that, that, and that this influences their behavior, even across species. Uh, and he's got all kinds of experiments and observations like this one to, to, to try to demonstrate that. But if it's true, if it's true that you've got empathy, in other words, that I, I, I can feel your pain, uh, and that I don't like when you feel pain, that it causes anxiety with me. Why do babies cry? Because it makes me anxious, and then I've got to do something to alleviate that, uh, that sort of thing. And, and I understand why they're crying. They're hungry. I get hungry. You know, so, uh, so, so, so if, if empathy and a sense of fairness kind of the origins, perhaps, of, of some ethical thinking, which we have developed incredibly in sophisticated ways once we started writing. But maybe they have their origins, and so we can't really understand what we write unless we place that into a larger and deeper perspective than what traditionally we have, because our ethics courses, although they're great courses, they tend to start with the written record of ethical thinking. There's nothing wrong with the written record of ethical thinking. I just don't think it goes back far enough to really put it in, in, a, in, in a more, in a richer context, uh, as far as I can see. Or we have the idea of narrative, of stories. We have an English department, and we have other language departments, which are fabulous. I love stories. I love movies and novels and all of that. And I love written uh, stories uh, and going to plays uh, and so on. Uh, but uh, but, but, uh, but uh, one of my favorite books is by this Eric Chasen. He's an, uh, an astrophysicist who calls his book the epic of, of, of evolution. And, and he says, if we learn how to read not just texts carefully, but if we learn how to read light uh, and bones and blood and rocks, they tell us a story. And it's an incredible story. Uh, it's a story that, that has all kinds of unpredictable twists and turns in, in its plot. Uh, and if you started at the beginning and you didn't know how it was going to turn out, you'd be awfully hard to predict. You know, it's boring if you know how the story is going to turn out at the end, uh, even, even when you start at the beginning. But he says it's a great epic. This, this 14 billion year epic that we've talked about. And it rivals any literature, the narrative that these natural th occurring things uh, tell us. Or there's a wonderful observatory in Coldijoko, Italy. And by the way, th th that, that uh, meteor that killed all the dinosaurs hit off the coast of the Yucatan about 65 million years ago. You know where it was discovered? In the Apennine Mountains in Italy. 
not, not far from this observatory, because uh, Walter Alvarez noticed that there was this thin line of iridium, which is common in meteorites, but not on, uh, on Earth. And there was a thin line, just below that line, there were white sedimentary rocks, which have all kinds of little critters left in them, the, the skeletons of, of shells of all kinds of critters. Above that line, there was sediment with virtually no critters in it. There was a great extinction at that point, at 65 million years ago. He discovered it, and then it kept getting discovered at that same time period all over the Earth. This was a global catastrophe, but it happened off the coast of, 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 of Mexico. And this is, this is a great story, right? Uh, the story of the extinctions are, are wonderful. We have the Cambrian explosion of life and so on, but there's five great extinctions. Periods of time when virtually, uh, well, a large percentage uh, of, of life becomes extinct. We're going through the sixth one now, perhaps, but maybe that's our own fault. Uh, and we hope it doesn't end up with our own extinction. But there's a great story here, and it's a compelling uh, story, and it's a story written in, in, in the rocks. And so their, their, logo, their logo says, from the book of rocks, the history of the world, that if you learn how to read rocks, you can read a story, but it takes time and it takes some effort to learn how to read rocks. It takes time to learn how to read texts carefully, too. Uh, but, but, but the scientists have, have read these events and have started telling us. Or economics. We've got the long history of economics. I'm going to whiz through this because I'm kind of running out of time. But lots of stuff here uh, on ex economics from millions of years ago. And remember, two and a half million years ago when our ancestors were making tools, we didn't exist. Uh, those who were involved in production and trade, perhaps, in these tools. This is before Homo sapiens exists, long before we exist, like 10 times before we existed, uh, compared to how long we've, uh, we've been around. So this has been a very much of a pre-human uh, activity, and then all kinds of creativity and innovation, again, before we come along, with different types of tools over time, um, and, and, and then different ways of, of using them to prepare food, uh, and that's a very uh, important social activity, and then of course later on with agriculture and the digital age. We've got the issue of language. Language, we've got all kinds of language departments. We've got Spanish and French and Portuguese and Chinese and Japanese and all this stuff. These are all relatively recent languages. They're all great. They're all incredibly important, but, but none of them are the original languages. How, how far back can we push this idea of communication between us? Uh, oral communication, uh, gestures and so on. Uh, this guy is clearly, this orangutan is clearly communicating with somebody. He's saying something. This guy is making uh, gestures, which is clearly saying something. We've got all kinds of gestures and, and language which go back far before any of our modern languages that we've got now. We've got the issue of, of, of religion, which is different from theology. Theology tries to talk about what is the role of God in all of this. It, it, the role of religious studies says, how, how did we start to comprehend something about the religious imagination. And, and, and at what point did, do we start to become aware of that? Uh, maybe God hasn't changed, but our understanding of what theology is certainly has. And, and how, how far back can we push uh, our 
sensitivity to these kinds of theological or religious concepts that we usually think of. Burials seem to be one indication of that. Uh, I, I've got other, some, some, some great videos, but I won't play them now, about elephants clearly mourn their dead. There's no question that they mourn uh, their, their dead. But they don't bury their dead. We seem to be the only ones who actually dig holes and place them ritually and put flowers on them. They find pollen on these types of things from tens of thousands of, of years ago. Uh, these these uh, people are ritually buried, and they're buried with grave goods. Uh, they're buried with pots and pans and weapons and clothing and, 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 and jewelry and so on. Uh, and why is that? Well, it turns out you can take it with you. Uh, because not only do you have a spirit, but everything else has got a spirit too. Like, uh, I, I want to be buried with my computer, so I've got something to do. And, uh, and, uh, you know, please put that in there with me. But, but we put grave goods in there because we're preparing people for, we're imagining, we're seeing another existence, something in addition to what we see here now. We remember the way they used to be. We have a sense of obligation to them, even though they're dead. Why do you have an obligation to something that's dead? But, but you feel that, and so you bury them in a certain way, and you want to prepare them for the next life, where they're going to go, uh, and they're going to need pots and pans and, and, and everything else with them. So you have a religious imagination, which is 100,000 years old or more. Uh, our textual religious traditions are fabulous, but they're three or 4,000 years old tops. Uh, and, and it seems to me that you want to put this in this longer perspective uh, it, 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 for all kinds of different reasons. You've got issues of patterns and relationship and art. I, I, I love this stuff from Blombos, which is in South Africa from about 75,000 years ago. This, is, this, this rock is just about the size of your hand. But whoever did that clearly etched a pattern. This is, this is not just doodling. Whoever is interested, they're interested in these patterns here, this, uh, this fishnet shape or whatever it is. What other patterns were they noticing? Were they, were they noticing patterns of seasons, of movements of animals, of appearance and disappearance of types of plants, patterns of the skies, uh, uh, patterns in social behavior? Who knows? I don't know what they were. But here, clearly somebody's interested in not only observing patterns, but in creating uh, uh, patterns, uh, which uh, social scientists are very interested in. The shells with the little holes drilled them are very interesting. Presumably, they're stringing them together. They're making some sort of adornment whether for beautification, maybe for some sort of religious purpose. Actually, I, I eat you, and your body comes to be part of me, and so your, your spirit gets mixed up with, with mine, and, or I'm going to give you a place to live. I don't know what it meant, uh, but it, it seems probably to have meant something. Or even those patterns. I mean, think of the etchings that we have. We have crosses and six-pointed stars and crescents with moons in them, and we attach a lot of meaning to those etchings. You know, did they attach some meanings to these etchings? I don't know, uh, but it, it wouldn't be uh, impossible. Uh, the cave art, uh, is, it goes way back. This, uh, these, uh, the, the art which exists from tens of thousands of years ago, uh, fascinating. The, these handprints, which Mike was showing us last time as well. You know, why did the artist spit paint uh, the, the outlines of, of, of his hand here or her hand uh, on the wall? Were they leaving a signature? Were they touching something behind the rock? What meaning did this have to them? Your speculation is as good as mine. But whoever went down into this cave at some effort 
was doing it for some reason uh, and, and symbolic reason. And we have uh, all kinds of other patterns and, uh, and, and shapes. And some people have referred to these as, as uh, ancient uh, Sistine chapels, that they had meaning for these people, whatever the meaning uh, was. Uh, and, and so you, ha you have these wonderful sculptures. Uh, yeah, they used to be called Venus figures, now the woman of Wellendorf or others. What did these mean? Uh, well, whoever was making these was not engaged in sexual behavior, but they were thinking about sexuality, gender, fertility, something or another. Uh, and, uh, and who knows exactly what the purpose was of these, but people are thinking symbolically. They are remembering and they are imagining in, in all kinds of different ways. You've got musical instruments from tens of thousands of years ago. People replicating sounds that they had heard in the past being aware of sound is very important for all kinds of reasons, and then recreating it here. Uh, this guy I really love, um, this Lowenmensch from about 30,000 years ago, the lion man, he's standing up. The artist has never seen something like this. You don't see lions with, uh, with arms standing up like this. This is, this is an imagination. Uh, this is something which doesn't exist in nature, but which the artist can imagine. Uh, and that, that idea of imagination and then planning and then trying to create what you plan uh, is something which is going to become very important to us. Idealized forms. Here's, a, here's something again from some over 30,000 years ago. The, the artist clearly had the ability to make realistic musculature, for example, but chose not to. This is just a nice series of, of curves. This is, a, this is an artist who likes abstract shape. Uh, like 30,000 years before Plato came up with the abstract idea of horse, this is an artist who has the idea of horse, which is a perfect type of a horse, long before we have any reality. We've got the arts and other types of caves. All right, I, I'm going to give you just a five-minute version now of where politics comes from, because I, I, that's what I, I come from the political science department, so I'm interested in that. And again, I think Franz Duval's done some really fun uh, observations of this, and he's got this book, which is one of my favorites, on chimpanzee politics. And he talks about all the alliances that chimpanzees form in their troops, and all the power struggles that go on, and all the attempts to have a harem, you know. It's almost like Bill Clinton, right? And, and, and you've got all of this stuff going on within these, 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 these groups. And it's a political structure. Our, our closest common ancestor with chimpanzees are about eight million years ago, more or less. So did, is, is politics at least eight million years uh, old? Uh, and, and, and traditional political science, at least the way it's taught in my department, we start with the American politics, 1776, 1787, Philadelphia, Declaration of Independence, Constitution. This is great stuff. Uh, and, and that's structured with an executive and a legislature and a judiciary and so on. It becomes more complex over time with the bureaucracy and with more states and, and, and all of this, uh, it, which is great. Or we have uh, international powers with balance of power structures and starting in 1648, and then it gets to the point where it incorporates the whole world, and we have that. Or traditional political theory, going back to Plato 2,500 years ago, uh, and we read the Republic and all of this. All of these things are fantastic and, and, and important. But, how, but starting the story in studying politics 2,500 years ago is just as problematic as studying the study of history, or ethics, or economics, or, or anything else, it seems to me, uh, in, in, in the liberal arts only two or 3,000 uh, years ago. It just doesn't push the story back far, uh, back far enough to understand the types of politics that we've cared about for a long time. I mean, the political relationships within family. We've got family politics. Uh, the, the, 
the different uh, struggles that go on within family. We've got plenty of conflicts within family and, and sustained relationship. That's been around for a, a very long time. Families are still important to us. They're very sustained. Extended families. We've got all kinds of extended families which are very important. Uh, we have very often certain families who become uh, professional full-time political leaders uh, with, the, with the growth of ceremonial centers. Uh, in, in the biblical tradition, it's the Levi's for some reason. Uh, they seem to be a family that's particularly important among all the different tribes. But, but that would just be, be, be one. There's uh, lots of dynastic figures. We had the Bushes and the Clintons. Uh, they seem to just always keep coming back. I mean, Jeb Bush or Hillary Clinton will be our next president, or maybe they both will be. Uh, so we have dynasties, it's, it seems like. Uh, Full-time political leaders uh, who very often come in family succession, uh, and the importance of that. The development, of course, of even more complex uh, sets of relationships among families and amongst, uh, in cities and in nations and, 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 and in empires, uh, but I'm not going to spend too much time on that. All right, what's the, what's the point of all of this, it seems like, uh, for, for politics? And it seems as though there's, as usual, there's a paradox, and, and there's opposite possibilities uh, here. One is that how should we understand our, each other? History, for example, is very often national history. We have American history and Russian history and English history and French history. Uh, we start the story back with the colonists and we go to George Washington and then we go to Abraham Lincoln and all of that. Uh, and, and the British and everybody else does the same thing. Traditionally, that's how we've taught history. Uh, but if we, if we start with this understanding of history, if we start with Mike Zimmerman's discussion of the origin uh, of hominins in East Africa, it, as it turns out, we really are all Africans. Uh, there is evidence we are all part of, of the same family, and there really is, is, is a real Eve. Uh, one of my favorite books is by Stephen Oppenheimer called The Real Eve. Uh, and she didn't live in Mesopotamia a few thousand years ago. She seems to have lived in East Africa like 150,000 years ago, back when there was a very small band of humans and we came darn close to becoming just as extinct as all those other hominins did because we really don't have that much going for us. If you slop yourself down on the plains of Serengeti, you know, you don't have teeth that are worth anything, your nails aren't worth anything, you're not very fast, or at least I'm not and I'm getting slower all the time. I, I can't get away from any of those critters, you know? And, and so so, frankly, I don't have that much going for me, uh, and, 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 it, and it showed. Most of our ancestors became extinct. <clears throat> but what we do have going for us are the relationships between us. We are incredibly political or social or community-minded. Uh, we really like to work together. So not only do we have 100 billion cells and a, and a trillion synapses in our brains, we've got lots of ways of interacting between us. And those interactions keep getting more complex over time in families and cities and nations and empires and now maybe at the global level and the human level where we have billions of people connected by the electronic movement of pixels uh, over, over cables and, and so on, uh, which is the first time in and universal history that that's ever been the case. That might be the most complex entity that exists, is the, is the sets of relationships between us, uh, and so the sociology of relationship. And so what we've gone to, uh, or go, come from, uh, is from quarks and atoms and molecules and minerals and biomolecules and, and cells and multicellular animals and, 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 and then social and political relationships uh, and the types of relationships which are going to enable us to work together most effectively. Uh, and uh, if we have a story of common origin, 
We come from the same place. The, the differences between us are minuscule in comparison. Uh, and, and, and then we see that not only do we come from a common human ancestor, but we emerge from all kinds of pre-human uh, uh, origins. Uh, and finally, we emerge from natural origins. We really, uh, I, I, lo I love the story of Genesis. It's a brilliant story. And remember that the, the fellow who was created was called Adam. Adam comes, I, as I understand, uh, from the Hebrew Adama, which is red earth. Uh, or, 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 and so God uh, molds the earth together. The right translation of Adam would be earthling. Uh, that's what he really should be called if you call him. So in that sense, the story says we're earthlings and we are earthlings. We are made out of the most common elements on the surface of the, uh, of the earth. Uh, carbon and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen, all that stuff which is common stuff uh, on, in the ground is what in fact uh, we're made out of. Uh, we are earthlings and so there you get seems to me a sense in which it, we emerge from nature, we emerge from a common source. What we have in common is astounding. And in fact, we shouldn't, there's this common, there's this silly notion about are we alone in the universe? I never, I, can't, you can't, I don't understand you taking that away from this story. If you look up at the skies, what you're looking at is your, your, your great, great, great grandparents. The, 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 I think it's pretty neat that the stuff that you're made out of was made in a star some billions of years ago. Uh, and that's where you come from. Uh, that's a, in that sense, that's your, uh, that's your origin. And so you have this real relationship uh, with, with nature, which has sustained relationship, creative relationships, uh, and which is going to be able to survive if we have the most sophisticated type of polity possible uh, um, among us. And that's where we get, I think, to the values of, of Villanova. We talk about truth. <clears throat> what's true? What's true about this story? We care about what's true. Is the Earth 6,000 years ago, uh, 6,000 6, years old, or four, four and a half billion years old? We care about what's, what's true there. We put these things in relationship with each other, the different sources of truth, the rocks and the bones and the blood and the radiation and the texts, and we try to say if you put those in conversation with each other, you start to have a unified notion of who we are in relationship to ourselves and with the others and everything uh, that's, uh, that's a, a, around us. And then if we have a sense that we come from the same thing, that we emerge from it, that we are in relationship with each other, that we have these common origins, are we more likely to actually care about each other? Which is maybe the most sophisticated thing and this, this value of caritas, uh, I, I think, is, is, is what is going to, if we're going to survive at all as a planet, we actually do have to care about each other and about our planet, otherwise we're fried. Uh, and, and that might be the more likely alternative. Uh, the more depressing scenario is that we aren't going to care about ourselves and, 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 the, and the environment and this is what we're going to do to it and, and we'll just have more wars and, we'll, and, the, and the current sixth great extinction that we're going through will eventually end up with us. And after all, we've been around for 200,000 years. That's a blink of an eye as far as the earth is concerned. If we last another 200,000 years, we're going to be really lucky. What's the likelihood of us seeing 250 million years from now, <clears throat> not good, uh, no matter what we do. And so we really have to take seriously the notion not of our personal death, 
but of our species' death. We are not going to survive 250 million years ago, uh, 250 million years in the future, I can just about guarantee you. Think back 250 million years ago when we had Pangaea, the last supercontinent. There's not many species existing now that existed then. Maybe a few exceptions, the prokaryotes and, and, and some eukaryotes and, and, and the jellyfish and a few others. But beyond that, uh, it, it doesn't look good. So by the time we have another supercontinent in 250 million years ago, the species is going to be gone. So, and, and how do we deal with that one? How do we deal with endings as well as beginnings? Because that's what we have to uh, consider. Uh, and then, of course, we've got the astronomers' predictions. The sun will, will become a red giant in a few billion years and will swallow up us, uh, and that'll be the end of Earth, and it was nice while it lasted. And then if the, and if the galaxies keep racing away from each other, some of them almost at the speed of light, maybe we'll look up at the skies, and this is what we're going to see uh, in the really distant uh, future, and that's what we're looking for, unless, of course, Paul, Paul Steinhardt is right, and it all comes back together and bounces again, uh, and, 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 and who knows. But this is where uh, we get up into this notion of endings uh, as well as beginnings. The, the end of things, where is this all uh, headed? And how do we try to give some, uh, uh, some articulation of what that means to us uh, and what that means, we sh how we should behave? This is the importance of the Genesis story, not the particulars. Uh, as we all know, there's two Genesis stories, and they sometimes contradict each other, and the editors knew that. They weren't surprised by this. They put it in there because they don't really care that much if vegetation comes before humans or humans come for vegetation. What, what they care about is what do we learn from this story about how we should behave? What are our ethical obligations? What are our relationships like to what is at the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end? Uh, that's the type of thing that uh, I will leave to Father Fitzgerald to try to tease out for us a little bit in our final uh, discussion about beginnings and endings. And I've kept you here for too long and I've been a typical professor blabbing on, but thank you. <laughs>